Hi, I'm Batsheva Frankel from Overthrowing Education, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hey, welcome back. Steve here. And today I'm talking with David Shar. He is the founder of Illuminate PMC. He specializes in helping organizations improve their leadership and culture, combat burnout, and design meaningful work. You're going to love David's passion and energy. You will be inspired to take on the world after you hear this talk today. Lots to learn. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to share and subscribe. Enjoy. <laughs> You are listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, a podcast for educators, helping you help kids achieve their dreams. And now here's Steve with this week's show. The founder of Illuminate PMC, David Shaw, is a keynote speaker, consultant, and trainer specializing in helping organizations improve their leadership and culture, combat burnout, and design meaningful work. David combines decades of leadership experience with the latest psychological research to help you attract, retain, and motivate top talent. David holds his bachelor's in human resource management from Colorado State University and his master's in industrial organizational psychology from the University of Maryland, College Park. He is a current doctoral candidate in business psychology at the Chicago School of Professional Psychology, where he is studying in the interaction between meaningful work and burnout. David is not your typical academic. As a scientist, practitioner, translator, David makes leadership theory and business psychology accessible, implementable, and fun through the use of humor, stories, and real-world examples. David, great to have you on the show. Thanks for joining me today, and say hi to everyone. Yeah, it's great to be here. Hello, everyone. Uh, Thanks so much for having me. This is really an honor, especially with what people in this space are going through right now. Um, I'm so happy to be able to... um, uh, take a little bit of their of their brain power away from all the things that are overwhelming them right now. Well, great timing. This is good stuff, and uh, and what a great topic because I do have to say, like I read in your intro, the uh, you know a lot of times that's a little dry that area. You know, it's not exactly. <laughs> and and so kudos to you for bringing some some life and oomph to it because that's what we what we need now. So so David, before we uh, before we get into what we're going to talk about. Let's know a little bit about you before we talk. What makes you laugh? What makes me laugh? Um, my kids make me laugh all the time. I'm, nice. I'm a father of five. Uh, my mm. kids range in age from one, uh, our youngest just turned one, to uh, our 13-year-old son. So two boys, three girls. Um, and they are constantly cracking me up. Um, some of them on purpose. You know, the, other, the older ones are actually developing a sense of humor. But the, the little ones, I mean, they just say things that make you melt. I, I say that I would have no material for my keynotes and my trainings um, if I didn't have kids. All my stories come from them. Everything I learn about life comes from them. And, uh, and I, think, I think all my laughs come from them as well. That's awesome. I love it. I love it. I have two boys and uh, it's, uh, you're, you're so right. That's, that's where magic comes from and you just never know what's going to be said. The younger they are, the more likely that's going to be the case. So it's, uh, and I got to say, just as a side note, the older they get, it happens then too. So, uh, except, they, <laughs> except they have a lot more to base their, their opinions about. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. So if you had, if you could spend your time doing anything, what would you spend your time doing? What's, what's that thing that uh, really you'd like to do? 
the most? Uh, so I'm very lucky um, because I do what I love. So um, there's nothing that I love more than impacting people's lives um, in a positive way through my work. Um, and I used to do that as like um, through management. And then um, when I pulled back and started doing consulting and keynoting, it was the ability to really impact people on a much larger level. So that instead of one organization or one school, I could impact multiples um, in, one, in one talk. And that to me is so fulfilling. Um, and I'd probably spend my entire life doing it except balance is important. And I also love my kids. And so the other thing in my life is my wife, my kids, my 120 pound monster of a dog. I've got a Bernese mountain dog for those familiar. Oh my gosh. Uh, yeah, so the circus at home, uh, I think keeps me grounded. Um, and I mean, it's just, it's just endless, um, endless fun around here. Very cool, very cool. The, uh, that's, that's good stuff, I think. It, and I think the questions fit well with what we're getting into here. So uh, yeah. um, we're going to, you know, before we finish our talk, we're going to respond to these two questions. One, how can teachers prevent burning out during these difficult times? And two, what should a teacher do if, if she's experiencing burnout? But let's start here. What's burnout? Yeah, so burnout has remained, the, the structure of burnout has not really changed over the, over the decades. So um, the original conceptual, uh, conceptualization of burnout is that it stands on three main legs, right? So you have emotional exhaustion is the first piece. Um, and I challenge your listeners uh, to think how often they felt these three things over the past seven months, because I know I've felt them many times. Um, and, and perhaps nobody uh, or very few professions have been hit um, harder than education, as you all well know. Um, but emotional exhaustion is not physical exhaustion. Um, it's really emotional overwhelm that, that then leads to exha physical exhaustion and can even lead to psychosomatic symptoms. Um, it, you can literally get sick from it. Um, and then the second piece is uh, traditionally known as depersonalization. Um, which extends to cynicism in other, in other sectors. But when you talk about depersonalization, this is almost uh, teachers protecting their psychological safety by pulling back from the students. Um, and you see this, and it's very interesting because uh, there's some research to suggest a, a, um, a sort of a trade-off with genders of teachers um, uh, generally, where we find that male teachers um, sort of suffer from emotional exhaustion less, but are very quick to hit that depersonalization. So in other words, they protect themselves from getting emotionally exhausted by distancing themselves from the students so that your students become another number in the grade book instead of um, that kid with the life and the home and all of this thing and, and this, this mind that you're, that you're molding. Um, uh, female teachers we see more often um, will hit higher levels of emotional exhaustion and lower levels of depersonalization because they, they tend to not want to let go, um, not even at, for their own protection, not distance themselves from that student. But obviously, um, this is a spectrum and you find people everywhere on that spectrum. So emotional exhaustion, depersonalization, and the third one is reduced personal accomplishment. So this is where uh, we feel like we're churning our wheels twice as fast and seeing half the results. 
Um, so what we see is uh, teachers going out there um, in COVID and trying to teach uh, from home. So now they've got all of their regular duties and they've got to teach and they've, they've got to grow these kids and they're trying to do it through a computer screen now. Or they're in person and trying to do it with masks and social distancing and plexiglass everywhere. Either way, there's so many more challenges. And so um, not being able to say, okay, this year it's 2020, good enough has to be good enough. But instead saying, I'm not making any accomplishment, like I'm not accomplishing anything. I'm not um, making any strides here and being so critical about that, self-critical um, is the third piece. Gotcha. The, you know, and because you hear a lot of people talk about it, but I think not really being able to just, just define it. Right. <laughs> it's just, I feel bad or I'm not doing well. So I, I appreciate you defining it for us. And, it, you know, why do you think that some organizations just seem not to be able to notice that their team members are experiencing burnout? Yeah, so I think, I think it's, it's really interesting. So when you look at law firms, it's really interesting. You, you see smaller law firms see very high turnover, right? And you think burnout equals turnover. People are going to quit their job because they burn out. But what you see with larger law firms is that there is equal or greater burnout, but less turnover because there are incentives to, change, to stay, people can't leave for various reasons, and so people leave, and then you see really destructive behaviors amongst lawyers in larger law firms oftentimes when they're burnt out but can't leave. Um, within education, this happens too. You know, a tenured teacher might not feel like they can leave even though they're feeling really burnt out. So we think, oh, turnover is burnout. But in reality, burnout can show its face in many, many ways. And an administrator is only gonna see it really beyond that, those turnover numbers or sick day numbers or whatever. They're really only gonna see it if they are communicating, if they are in there and getting to know their teachers and having some substantial conversations with them to learn what's going on inside their head and building that trust so that the teacher can reveal that. Uh, that's a good point. You know, the, the idea of uh, you, you got to talk, you got to have conversations that go beyond, hey, how you doing? Or, right. you know, the, the, the hallway talk, you know, hey, yeah. good to see you today. How you doing? You don't really expect someone to stop and go, well, you know, if you really want to know. Right. And, <laughs> um, there, used to, there used to be a great uh, commercial for a convenience store that was the, hey, how you doing syndrome. And, and the neighbors would say that until they got their cup of coffee from the convenience store. Then they talk. <laughs> 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 anyway, um, so, you know, what, one of the things that uh, um, this leads us to is, you know, what is something that an organization can do to help stop burnout or at least interfere with it? Yeah, so from the organizational uh, point of view, um, really you have to figure out what is baked into the, the situation. What, it, what is it about your culture that is um, causing burnout to begin with, right? And so oftentimes we jump right to resilience training and teach uh, the teachers how to um, take time for themselves and how to do yoga or exercise or what, right? Eat right and, and that'll reduce burnout. My, my issue with jumping right there is that oftentimes we're missing the mark. It's almost like shifting the blame. When we immediately teach you what to do about it, uh, we're saying, uh, we're going to continue to abuse it and we're going to tell you how, to, we're going to teach you how to take it, right? In reality, burnout is super contagious. 
And I would argue that that's primarily because it's baked into the culture of the organization or like in today's day and age with 2020, it's baked into what is happening, you know, within society around us. And so uh, what can the administrators do with that? Well, we see that there are some primary things. So there's one um, famous burnout model, which is the demand control support model, which argues when demand goes up, you know, your workload increases, which right now um, teachers everywhere are seeing their demand load increase because they're trying to do everything they already were doing, plus figure out the technology of the screen or keep everyone safe from COVID, right? Um, the second thing is that control piece. Um, do people feel like they're in control? And I'd say that most of us feel very out of control right now. And I don't care whether you are um, team Fox News or CNN or just staying away from the news, whatever you are ingesting, whatever information you're taking in right now is completely confusing, changing all the time. And the answers that we really need, nobody has the answer to. Like, when is this going to be over? When do we get to go back to normal, right? And so we have this loss of sense of control. We don't, we don't feel like we are in, are in control of our own destiny right now. And that leads to learned helplessness, which is a precursor, not just to burnout, but to depression, right? When we feel like we are not in control of our own destiny, that could lead us down some really dark paths. And so what we find is that people burn out at work with that loss of sense of control. Um, and so uh, what can administrators do about these two things? Well, they can do everything in their path to help and support their teachers right? Jump in there, get dirty, like, like figure out ways to make this work. Figure out the technology for your teachers, like support them in that. Or if you're in the schools, jump in there and help with all of the safety measures and the cleaning and lesson planning and whatever you can do to lighten the load on your teachers. The control piece is all about giving them, like, not to take over, but to, to involve them in the process, right? And to give them a sense of control in the process. Um, one of the things that I think has been um, absolutely devastating for teachers um, in, in the, this country is that teachers, when everything went online at the start of coronavirus, teachers were the heroes. They were celebrated everywhere. Um, everybody was, was in awe because now their kids are home and we're seeing what you guys are doing over the computer screen and we can't believe it, right? So like, um, uh, you know, I was watching, one of my kids was on their online, in their online class and I hear another student in the room say, say, sir, can I use the potty? I'm like, the kid's sitting in his own living room, go use the potty, what are you talking about? You know, it was just, nice. just such bizarre things. They're like, but like, teacher, look at my dog, you know, weird things. And so, and so teachers are heroes and we recognize it because suddenly you're sitting in our living rooms, in our offices, right? Um, but then something changed. And when we started talking about whether we go back or not, um, teachers in a lot of circles became, you know, um, vilified in a lot of ways. And um, regardless of what end of the spectrum you personally felt like as a teacher, um, it was difficult not to feel like a pawn because suddenly you're a pawn in this political game. And what do parents want? And is a teacher, um, you know, a lot of teachers have expressed to me that they started feeling like glorified babysitters 
right? That the only reason we're going back, we know it's not productive to go back. We know, but the parents say that they need to go back to work. So they're sending their kids back. Am I just a babysitter? That it's such a loss of, of sense of autonomy in your life, you know, that, that you feel like a pawn like that. And the third piece is support. Um, and that really is that teachers need to be supporting each other right now and having support from their administrators as well. And that comes in so many ways, emotional support, um, as well as the types of support that we had already spoken about. That's, that's so powerful. Cause that's, I mean, it, you, you need that help, whether, you know, some people are very reluctant to ask for, right. <laughs> and, uh, and even though they might be acknowledging it, they, they don't want to look weak or whatever. And, and you're right. I can see it. it it's just that, uh, um, you can see where all this would be like a train wreck ready to happen, you know, a hundred miles an hour ready to to hit that wall. Uh, You know, and it's interesting because, you know, one of the other things I would think that uh, um, can lend itself to this also is that as we return back to class, you know, with the opening of schools and such, I would think that uh, another aspect of teachers lives, which is, you know, you go in your classroom and you shut your door. Yeah. And I can imagine that doesn't help either. I mean, what do you think about that? Right. Yeah. I mean, now you can't shut your door. You got to open the window too. And and, and it's for the cross breeze. And it's really, really, it's really, there's so many different sets of challenges, but I want to go back to something you just mentioned. Um, I want to, I want to talk for a second to those tenured teachers out there. Um, So I speak to a lot of schools and, and teachers. And what I find is that the tenured teachers are having the most difficulty with this in my experience. Um, and I think a big piece of that is that you are tenured and there's this sort of confidence piece where you think you're supposed to have it all figured out and that's pulled out from underneath you. And suddenly you feel exposed, right? So you don't wanna show weakness. You don't wanna show um, uh, that there's any ambiguity in the situation or, or that you don't know what to do. So. Um, if we could for a second just give tenured teachers the permission to recognize that we are all novices in this. This is a new environment. This is a new world. So we are not taking anything away from your credentials or your amazing teaching. It's just that for this blip of time, this is so new to everyone, even you, and we are not expecting anybody to be an expert in this whatsoever. So it's okay to be vulnerable. That's awesome. I, I love that. That's and because you're right. I mean, the, the longer you're teaching, the more that you're, you're thinking that you should have control of this. And it is even more difficult to ask for help or to say, Hey, I'm drowning. Right. And uh, I think that's important advice. I, you know, something that I've read about um, that I've heard you mention is something called resilience training. Can you talk about what that is and whether it works or not? Yeah. So resilience training, absolutely works for a lot of people. And so basically we naturally are wired to be more or less resilient, right? So people that measure higher in neuroticism on a personality scale are likely to be a little bit less resilient than people that might be lower in neuroticism. Um, Life experiences can do things with our resilience as well. Um, But what resilience training is, is when we go into a school or other environment and we train people on how to basically take care of themselves, how to bounce back when things are difficult. And right now in 2020, things are so difficult and it's so out of our control that resilience is a big piece of it. So 
teaching people about mindset and about self-care is super important. The problem is in this space of burnout, um, the research and the practice has been so focused on resilience training that um, even, though, even though the primary research on this shows that there's two pieces, there's how, are, how resilient are we as individuals and what does the structure of the organization look like? What is, what is happening within the workplace that is causing this burnout to begin with? So my natural approach is to go in and do something different than other um, burnout consultants do by tackling and saying, okay, you have a burnout problem. How do we build a burnout-proof culture? So how do we, instead of, instead of coming up with um, the therapy, right, like the, the treatment, how do we like give the vaccine? How do we, how do we cure this thing with, that's in the culture to begin with? Because when you have a school that has a super supportive administra administration, um, it has ways built in for teacher communication and support, right? And there's so many cool technologies for that. Um, it has things that are built in to give teachers like control and autonomy, not just in their classroom, but in sort of the scope of the school and be able to really have decision authority on things. And it has ways of, of going through handbooks and getting rid of these policies that have no place in there anyway. And my, by the way, not just in the handbook, there's written policies and unwritten policies. Your school culture is rife with things that might have made sense 50 years ago and don't make sense today. It's also rife with things that may have made sense nine months ago and not and are not with with Corona are not valid today, but we hold on to them because we fear change and stability. It seems like more like it makes more sense. And I always tell people if you're in a meeting um, and somebody says that, but that's the way we've always done things that's when you stand up and say, uh-uh, we have to rethink this, <laughs> you know? Um, and and that's, why, that's why I think that that other side of it is so important. So I couple the both, the both of those together, but it's always, okay, what can we do as a school community? Administrators, teachers, staff, everybody come together and figure out what we can do to affect the culture of our organization. And what's interesting is that in schools, you sort of have two cultures. You have the culture with the, with the students that we always talk about, but then you have the culture about working there, like the, the culture for the teachers and administrators, who by the way, are also human and are also burning out like crazy right now. Um, you know, you have the, you have the culture that, that envelops them and the two inform each other and impact each other. Um, but we don't pay enough attention in my, in my um, estimation on that culture of, on the teacher side. That's, that is so just, just right there. I mean, I, I think about it when you think about it in the environment, um, because, and I, I think I'm going to go back to something you said earlier about communicating between the groups, <laughs> um, right. because a lot of times, and each group has its own little groups too, <laughs> little silos right. and things like that, whether it's administrators within the administrator group and teachers within the teacher group, and then the whole staff and uh, all those different little aspects that the more, I would think the more separate they stay, the more likelihood that uh, there's less understanding and uh, more, you got to do it because I said so, or because we've always done it this way. And, uh, and so then the frustration is not tapped into. Right. Or seen and then, or and then you see depersonalization kicking in there from administrators. It's not administrators to students, it's administrators to teachers, 
when they're feeling the stress, they put up walls between themselves and their teachers who are their clients, their, right? Their, right. their, their students. And so um, the more that there is the other, the more we find ourselves um, introducing biases like the fundamental attribution principle, right? Which uh, fallacy, which is that um, if I trip on the sidewalk, the very first thing I do is look at the sidewalk behind me because there must be a crack there, right? Do I give that same benefit of the, of the doubt when I see somebody else trip? So it turns out that in general, no, we don't. And in work settings, for sure we don't. When, when a teacher is late, it's because they don't care. It's because they, they, don't, they don't care, they're not committed, um, they're sending a message. It's, it has something to do with, with their character, right? If the administrator is late, it's because, well, it was really unusual traffic and the kids and it's 2020. I mean, so when, things, when we do things wrong, it's always something external. When the other does something wrong, it's something with their character. And so the more separate we are, this goes both ways. So when administration messes up, teachers look and say, we're just pawns, they don't care about us, whatever, right? And when teachers mess up, um, the administrators are saying, they don't care at all. In reality, everybody cares because I, I work with people at every level. So I can tell you for, for a fact, in general, most people care and, and they care about common outcomes. They care and, and should be working together for those common outcomes. But oftentimes we vilify the other. That's awesome. And, and audience couldn't see me, but I mean, when you start, when they start talking about the sidewalk, I got this big smile on my face because yeah, that's, that's usually, you know, you turn around and you go stupid sidewalk, right. you know, it's like, right. it's, it's, it's the sidewalk really was thinking about, yeah, I'm going to reach out and trip you now. And, you know, and it, and, but that analogy fits so well because we do, we vilify the other side and we get caught up in all that. And I think, Oh my gosh, that's, that's just incredible. Thank you for explaining that. And I, and uh, I'm going to keep that sidewalk thought in mind. Too. <laughs> so, um, you know, David, could you talk a little bit about understanding, you kind of delved into it a little bit here just a minute ago, but could you talk a little bit about understanding the deeper meaning of work? I mean, work is a calling and finding passion and meaning in your work. Yeah. So interesting. So um, in my spare time, I'm, I'm a father of five, uh, own my own consultancy and keynote speaking business. And somehow force myself to find time to also be um, a doctoral student. So nice. my, re right. So my, my research is in um, the, that connection between burnout and meaningful work. Um, what I find really interesting is that uh, occupations like education, which was like number two to be introduced to like the burnout theories and, and research, right? Um, that, that the objectively more meaningful occupations, more impactful occupations tend to see much higher burnout than, uh, than occupations where, where um, maybe it's a little bit less obviously meaningful. Um, and I think it's because we, we come into work um, and you know, the, those Teach for America kids who think that they're gonna walk in and they're gonna change the world, and it's gonna be like one of those movies, not only are they gonna teach everyone math, but we're gonna be ballroom dancing and off of drugs and everything all at once, and it's gonna be amazing. And then, and then what happens is like, um, they, they suddenly feel handcuffed because all of the bureaucracy and all of the policies and people who have seen this done a million times and fail a million times, and all of this comes flying in their face and they realize like if their bubble is burst, right? 
and suddenly they feel like they are destined to do something and they're not able to do something do it and i think that that is such so damaging for us right um and so also this is why you see burnout in younger people you know and and earlier workers because by the time you get uh, more tenured it's like you've already figured out that uh this is the, just the reality of the situation and we accept things and perhaps we accept some things that maybe we shouldn't accept you know some limitations that we maybe shouldn't accept um but the idea of meaningful work uh which i don't know that i need to tell your audience because they are doing it right they are impacting lives um one thing that i could say if i could share a quick story um i told you i learned everything from my kids so um uh, oh, a while ago when my two oldest were my two youngest at the time. So I had a five-year-old and a three-year-old. My five-year-old was uh, sitting in the middle seat of our van. Um, my two or three-year-old was, was in the back seat in her um, car seat. And my wife was driving and they were coming back late at night from like uh, my in-laws place. They're driving, it's dark, the radio's off so that everyone will hopefully just fall asleep totally silent in the car. My son, five years old, is just staring out the window when he notices a herd of deer. And so he looks out at this herd of deer and he speaks up and he says, mommy, what's the purpose of deer? And so my wife is a teacher herself, right? A first grade teacher. So she knows exactly what to do with this. I don't know, honey, what do you think the purpose of deer is, right? Turn it right back on him. Nice. So they go back and forth and do this and do this little thing. Like, what are, like, is it to add grace and beauty to the world? Is it to feed the foxes? I think that was his idea. He's 13 now. He's okay. But I think that's, that's something he came up with. And they keep going back and forth. And then suddenly, you know, over time, the conversation dies and it goes, the, the car goes silent again. Until there's this tiny peep from the way back seat where everyone thought my three-year-old daughter was sleeping. And she said, mommy, what's my purpose? And my wife's mind starts spinning a million miles an hour, like trying to figure out like, what is her purpose? Is she going to be the first female president of the United States? Is she going to invent the next Facebook? Is she gonna find the cure for cancer? All of these things, like when we think of purposeful life, right? Um, my son spoke up five years old, before my wife could utter a sound in response. And he says, my, my daughter's name is Rena. He says, that's easy, Rena. Your joy, that's your purpose. You make people happy. Nice. He got it because it's so simple. It's that's so awesome. simple. And we are indoctrinated over time to think that a purposeful life, meaning, you know, a meaningful life, uh, needs to get you on the cover of Time Magazine. And if not, well, I hope reincarnation is a thing because better <laughs> luck next time. But what my son understood is what we all understand at one point, which is that really it's just about being your authentic self and impacting those around you. And through the butterfly effect, that Im impacts more and more people and until the entire world has changed. And so for teachers who are, who are used to doing these amazing things and, you know, teachers who are used, used to like teaching their class and doing the school play and being on the whatever committees, right? And they are impacting the world. And now they're sitting at home and zooming into their students and they're looking for meaning in their work and think they've lost all meaning. They've got it wrong. This is the meaning. Those individual connections with those students, that's what it's all about. The rest is just noise. Maybe it amplifies great, but what it's really about is 
that using your inner talents and your, and your, your uh, specific mission to impact the individuals and thereby the world around you. That's awesome. I love it. And, you know, and it's, it's great thoughts for a teacher and administrator to listen to is that you haven't lost your purpose. You've, you know, it's, it's, you're still impacting, you're still doing, you just have to <laughs> retool yourself just a little bit because I know exactly the people you're talking about, the ones, they do everything. And right. now they're kind of like, I'm looking at boxes. Okay. So, <laughs> you know, and, and this, you know, and it, 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 easily could uh, take away. And I, I just think that uh, refueling and reminding about that passion and that importance of uh, what they do is so, so um, important, so important. Uh, good stuff. By the way, I, you don't have a little bit of passion for that topic, do you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I get a little bit passionate. <laughs> I love it. I love it, man. That's, that's just, you just energized our whole state, I think. So, uh, <laughs> and definitely all the listeners. So we got, uh, um, it, yeah, so let's shift now into those questions that I talked about at the beginning. The, the, two, the two questions that I said we would answer by the time we got towards the end. The first one was, how can teachers prevent burning out during these difficult times? So what do you think? Yeah, so I think, um, how can a teacher from their, from their seat prevent burnout? So resilience is important. It, it is important to eat well and exercise, get out, make some time for yourself create some boundaries, especially if you're working from home. Um, as soon as you're working from home and zooming in, the boundaries are sort of broken down all around you. You need to put up some form of boundaries um, between uh, your work life and your home life. Um, and however that might work out for you, whether there's a significant other at home or a spouse at home that can sort of um, take care of the kids at some point or or whatever it is that you just need to breathe and, and take care of whatever your hobby is, whatever, whatever it is, right? But even more so, I think that the other side of this, the cultural side, the, the organizational side of burnout, you don't need to be an administrator to impact these things. And by impacting these things, you impact not only yourself, but all of the other people within your organization. And those things are about taking back control, take on a task, do something productive, do something that you love for the school, for your students, take on some project if you can, because when you do that, you are now taking control and everything else sort of starts to fall into place. Um, start a support group for your, um, your co-teachers. Uh, somebody from one of my, from one of my uh, talks uh, said to me later, that they started a small wins WhatsApp group with the teachers, right? So people just started putting like small wins. So now you're taking control, you're, you're adding support, you're checking off all of these boxes that we know reduce burnout. Um, but more than anything else, I think that it is to reframe how you're thinking about your work in 2020 and understand, be vulnerable for a second and understand the limitations and reset your goals based on the available resources. Um, and, and know that this is, um, as much as it seems like this is such an outlier year and that this is the worst year ever for so many of us, um, in reality, as a teacher, you could think about it like that. It is a bit of an outlier, or you could think of it as the exact year that you signed up for this for. Why did you get in into teaching uh, to begin with? 
many, many people, when I put up word clouds at my talks, like, like I asked them for a word association, one word, you know, why did you get into teaching, right? And the biggest thing is always the students' growth, right? Like uh, mentorship, all of these things. And when you get down to that core, who, this is the year when those students need you most. And it's not about the big stuff because the big stuff isn't available right now. Yeah, their school play has been canceled. Yeah, there's no football team maybe right now. Yeah, you, we can't impact them in a lot of the ways that we normally do, but you can get on a five minute Zoom call to let them know that you're there. You can reach out and, and tell them that you support them and show them support in one way or another. This is why you signed up for teaching. It, the, the, the education stuff, the, 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 the math, the science, the English, all that stuff is great and super important. But at the core of it all, you wanted to impact lives. If, if not now, when? This is the time to impact lives. That's awesome. I, you know, and it, it, you're so right. It is. It's, it is the time to impact. And it is what, you know, it's why you got into this in the first place. You just didn't realize that this day would come when right. they really need you and your, your focus on, uh, on helping. Good stuff. So the last, that, uh, the second of those two questions was this, what should a teacher do if she or he is experiencing burnout? If you're experiencing burnout, reach out, reach out to people for support. Um, that is the most intuitive thing to do. Um, and, but also to know that there's no shame in it. Uh, the numbers now, the latest numbers are like over 40% of Americans are saying that they've experienced burnout now. Um, that, those are high numbers and those numbers are not straight out from schools. So I can guarantee you within education, it's likely much higher. Um, education started higher, you know? So, um, so that's, that's the most obvious thing to do. Something a little less obvious to do is to support others and give to others. Um, what we find is that in organizations where we see high levels of support being received, we also see high levels of support being given. And it's really complicated to separate those things because it turns out that the, that's the law of reciprocity. As soon as you start to give, you start to receive, right? And not only that, when you're giving, you start feeling better about yourself. Um, I'm not going to get into it because of time, but my career started with working with inner city kids and, and teenagers um, in a small ice cream parlor in Baltimore City. And um, there, the way we were able to transform their lives was by taking our ice cream on the road and starting to volunteer with um, healthcare for the homeless, with the ARC um, which uh, works with people um, with developmental disabilities, um, with uh, Best Buddies, with all of these different organizations. We were able to go and help others. And it flipped the switch that, wait, we are not as helpless as the media might tell us, as, as we might see around us. We are actually in a position to help others. And when we do that, we are taking control of something. And when we reach out to help others, we realize that we still have so much to give. Uh, so while it's counterintuitive, if you're feeling burnt out, find a way to help others. Love it. Love it. Great advice. Great advice. It, uh, David, as we're getting ready to close, could you talk a little bit of how you developed a passion for helping people deal with their work worlds? And I think you kind of let us in yeah. a little bit. So. <laughs> there you go. What a segue. So, yeah. So my first, uh, my first business, I, uh, well, my first brick and mortar business, um, I opened a, a ice cream parlor right? It was a franchise ice cream parlor. And I took it, I took it over. Um, it had been pre-existing for a couple of years, uh, purchased the franchise, 
um, and with it inherited the crew. And this is in Baltimore City. So anybody who's familiar with The Wire, uh, not very far off from the, uh, you know, the HBO show, which is very gritty look at Baltimore. Um, not very far off from the reality of a lot of these kids' lives. So they lived, I mean, their lives were trauma. So many of us are experiencing trauma right now. But for these kids, like many of your students too, depending on where you're teaching, their entire lives were trauma. This would be nothing different for them. Um, we're talking about parents in, in prison, uh, siblings being gunned down on the street, like some really horrible, horrible things. Um, one day, uh, this um, young lady, I think she was like 17 at the time, an ice cream scooper of ours, walked into her minimum wage job scooping ice cream, right? And she started scooping the ice cream and I noticed she seemed down. So I said, so I said, hey, what's going on? I called her aside and she turned to me and I saw tears coming down her cheeks. And she explained to me that that morning, her boyfriend who we knew was involved in some sort of gang activity or whatever, um, he had been found uh, shot multiple times and left for dead. And he was flown to the hospital via helicopter, medevac, and, and they, things didn't look good. So I start like almost literally pushing her out the store, like, go, you don't have to be here today, go. And she insisted she had to be here. And I said, no, 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 no. Like, I'll pay you for the day and cover your shift personally, just go. And she stopped me. And I remember to this day what she said. She said, no, I need to be here. I can only be here. This is my happy place. That here's a 17 year old girl who didn't feel like she could be with family or go to the mall or do whatever, whatever you would expect a 17 year old kid to do when they needed to escape in a moment like this. But instead, work was what was bringing meaning into her, into her life. And it was really because we weren't serving ice cream. We were using ice cream just as a tool, but our mission was to make Baltimore a little bit of a happier, better, kinder place. And so I looked around me and saw my friends who were teachers and administrators and lawyers and doctors and nurses and how many of them were dreading going to work every Monday morning. And here's somebody who lives in the conditions that she lives in and facing the trauma that she's, that she's facing and she is finding meaning in scooping ice cream. And that's where I, I began to think about and obsess over the meaning of work and, and what that, why there was that disconnect, right? And, and so that drew me back to school and, and here I find myself, uh, you know, working on an endless, it seems like, dissertation on this and talking to people specifically within those objectively meaningful occupations like education on how to reconnect with that and how to find meaning in something that is already so meaningful that it's not that it's not that it's hard to find it's just that you lost it amongst the bureaucracy and the stacks of paper and now amongst the the chaos of 2020 that's what an incredible story and i love it and i got it and i thank you for sharing and i'm glad that you took that path because this is uh it it, it you're right i mean a lot of us we get caught up in that whole monday really <laughs> You know, it's, it's like, it's coming a little too soon and, you know, it's, uh, and, you know, dreading work and whatever, and, you know, needing people to help us figure out how to, um, how to get out of that mindset and understand that there's some things to be appreciated about it, which is what a great right. story about uh, her saying that that was scooping ice cream, a happy place and uh, yeah. not the others, you know, it's, uh, but by the way, I have to ask having, having 
done a dissertation and in, in a in a program not like yours, but I've done my, yeah. <laughs> my share in the history world. They, uh, um, are you thinking about besides maybe a dissertation and stuff somewhere down the road a book? You got something in works? Yeah, I, I, you know, in retrospect, the book is the easy way. Book, <laughs> you write, you write a book, self-publish it, instant credibility, whatever. Um, but for me, it was. For me, you know, credibility is important, but for me, it was really about this, um, this endless thirst for finding answers in this domain. Um, and with the dissertation, you know, you know what they say about dissertations, you know, um, don't try to solve all the world's problems in your dissertation, right? right, right. Pick, a, pick a lane, pick a question, find the answer, <laughs> right? Um, add to the research, the body of research, done. Um, I find that extremely difficult because I keep going down these rabbit holes and I'm like, no, but these are answers that I need. Uh, so if I ever complete my dissertation, um, you know, I would really love to take out all the boring stuff, you know, and, and put in a couple more of the stories of my kids. I'm sure they won't allow me in my academic paper um, and, and publish a book as well. But uh, that's a couple of years down the line. I got you. And just, and You'll get there. You'll get there. It's going to happen. <laughs> having, having plenty of those conversations where the, the, my professor looked at me and goes, you know, I appreciate what you just shared with me, but it's not your topic. <laughs> Can you get back on topic? And <laughs> how many years did it take you? I don't want to tell you. <laughs> okay, That's what I hear all the time. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's just say that the classes were done in three, not the, not nice. the dissertation. All right. <laughs> So, right. so hang in there. It can be done. If I can do it, it can be done. Um, but uh, kudos to you. And uh, I, I love this direction that you have, David. This is awesome. I, you have your, your own business and it's called Illuminate PMC. Tell us about it. Yeah. So Illuminate PMC for performance management consultants. Illuminate actually comes from uh, the Hawthorne studies. One of the, um, basically the, the first real um, introduction to motivation research within the workplace. Um, they had these warehouses that they were studying and they started messing with the lights to see if they turn down the lights, does that decrease productivity, turn up the lights, does that increase productivity? And what they found was whatever they did with the lights, it increased productivity. And so they started diving deeper and they realized it's because this was the first time that these poor workers in this factory had people in suits coming in and paying attention to them, wow. right? And so they started playing around with things like autonomy and giving them decision authority and things like that. And, and it changed the way we would look at work forever. So that's where Illuminate uh, comes from. But um, so Illuminate PMC, you go to illuminatepmc.com. You can find me on LinkedIn, um, linkedin.com slash in slash David Shaw. I'm very, I'm very active there. Um, but I try to help any way I can um, with, with uh, the people in the workplace. So everything from selection to training to change management, et cetera, but through the lens of meaningful work, work engagement, uh, building burnout proof cultures. Um, and so I do it through coaching, consulting, and, and uh, uh, training and, and keynote speaking as well. Awesome. Awesome. And uh, uh, I'll have uh, connections on my uh, links on my uh, uh, show notes page so that people can find your website as well as go to those pages there that'll let them con connect with you. So good stuff. The uh, uh, last two questions I got, David, and they go, go like this. When things get difficult or there are too many issues all coming at once and you want to quit, how do you overcome those feelings and keep going? Um, I put on my, my, um, 
horrible shorts. They're, they're super bright red. My wife and kids always criticize it. I throw them on, I leave the house and I go for a three mile run. Um, by the time I get back, I've sort of sorted things out a little bit more um, and, and feel a little bit better about it. I can come back with a fresh start. Uh, but what's happening in my head while I'm doing that is I'm sort of pulling back from it, but I'm also trying to see the forest through the trees. So um, I am I'm picking it apart. So oftentimes when I see people getting overwhelmed with their workload, it's because it's this big amorphous cloud. Uh, but that cloud is actually built up of teeny tiny pieces. Like here's here's one thing that I'm thinking about and something else that's on my plate and something else that's on my plate. And really it's about picking it apart and seeing what can I control and what I, what can't I control? If I can't control it, then put it aside. You know, um, if I can control it, what, when do I need to tackle this? How can I tackle it? Um, and really start to itemize um, your anxieties or itemize those things that are overwhelming you. Um, I think that that's super, super helpful. Excellent. Love it. The last question. Do you have a teacher in your past who made a difference in your life? If so, who was it? And what would you say if given the chance to say thank you? Yeah, I've got, I've got a bunch of them. Um, so one of them was Mrs. Kratz. She taught me um, English, I believe, um, back in um, late middle school. So maybe she, she might have been my teacher both seventh and eighth grade, I think. Um, so, and I went to an all boys school. Um, eighth grade, all boys school, not the easiest uh, grade to teach. And um, I remember her, her control of the classroom was epic. Like she didn't fight with us. She's, she sort of like redirected us and introduced learning in interesting and innovative ways and, and really impacted me through that. Um, and when people compliment me on my writing, I say it's got everything to do with her. When they criticize my writing, I just leave her out of it. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I love it. Thank you for sharing so much. And, and David, thank you so much for talking with me today. What an awesome focus you have. I think there is not one person anywhere who cannot benefit from learning about developing a better understanding of their role with work, dealing with burnout, and learning about their work potential. I'm wishing you the best in all that you do, and, and you'll get that dissertation done soon. So, <laughs> <laughs> from, your, from your words, from your yeah. mouth. <laughs> thank you so much. I really appreciate being here, and thank you all for listening. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is excited to be a member of Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right here. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. <laughs> expressed on Teaching Learning Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions for classroom teachers and school administrators. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll share it with your friends.